Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. Our topic has been, for the last several weeks, and we're not finished yet, uh, divine inspiration. And I, I guess I want to ask a question again, and let's focus on those two words, divine inspiration. What do we mean by that? Say it one more time, Dan. That it came from God. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16. And, of course, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this young preacher. And he tells Timothy in verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul, what in the world would he know about the Bible? He was what? Yeah. In fact, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so he would be considered a biblical scholar. And it's interesting, he's writing to Timothy. Uh, Timothy's mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. And uh, he also had a, a, a Jewish grandmother, they were godly people. And he reminds Timothy that all Scripture, and Dan, I want to use the words you use because it's good, were given by God. That's what the word divine means, God. Inspiration means God breathed. Now, also, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in our study. Uh, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, when he said all Scripture, what Scripture was he referring to? Okay, every bit of it, but in particularly, what part of the, of the Bible? The Old Testament, why? That's all there was at that time. Now, by the way, uh, later on in Peter's letter, he he acknowledges Paul's writing of being part of that as well. And we, we now have the New Testament. But it's also interesting to me that uh, when uh, Paul wrote this, of course, he uh, was speaking primarily of the Old Testament. That's all they had. And he said all Scripture. Now, we began this topic last week, and we're looking at types in the Old Testament and uh, the fact that the Old Testament is typical of what's going to happen in the New is certainly another internal evidence of divine inspiration. Now, remember, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years, over 40 different authors. And my question would be, which one of those 40 authors would have known what was going to happen a thousand years later. Another one would. So there's no way that a man on his own could write books and that they wrote whatever they wrote and then together make up the Old Testament and figure out exactly what was going to happen in the New to make sure that what they wrote lined up. And the only way it could happen is how? Divine inspiration. So again, uh, you know, Paul certainly made the, the, the comment to Timothy that it's all inspired. So the Bible does say that about itself. And like I said earlier, any book can say anything about itself. But so we're looking at internal evidence that the Bible has to be divinely inspired. Now, again, we began last week here on this topic, talking about the typical significance of the Bible and that you know, they declare the authorship. Let's go back to a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Anybody want to read that? Yeah. 
All right, somebody read John 5.39, please. John 5.39. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, again, we mentioned this last week, but I think it's important to understand that Christ is the key to the Scriptures. The writer of Hebrews, quoting Jesus, uh, Jesus said, In the volume of the book it is written of me. What volume of the book is he talking about? Well, all about the Old Testament primarily. It was written of Christ. And then in John 5.39, Jesus gives the command to search the Scriptures. He was talking, of course, to the religious people, the Pharisees. He said, you think that in them you have eternal life, but eternal life is not in the Scriptures. Jesus said they testify of him. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. So even Christ himself, two different times, clearly stated that the Old Testament is written about him. Now, that being said, as we read the Old Testament, who should we look for there? For Jesus. See him in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, again, uh, we know today we have the New Testament as well. Uh, we have uh, the three synoptic Gospels. We have the Gospel of John as well. And uh, But Jesus didn't say search the Gospels. He wasn't talking about that. They weren't written yet. He's talking about uh, what Moses had written down, what the prophets had written down. He's talking about the Old Testament. Now, if you're a student of the Scriptures, you know that the Old Testament is certainly uh, covers a lot of history. Uh, it talks about the flood and things like that, and uh, the beginning of the Jewish race and the kings and uh, the judges and all the events during those times. And so there's a lot of historical facts in the Old Testament. But we need to understand the Old Testament is more than just a, a gathering of historical facts. We also know uh, that uh, when you get to Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, there's a lot going on uh, that we're told about of the social and religious uh, legislation during that time, things they were to obey to be right with God. And there was also a code of ethics. So all that is true, but if that's all we see when we're looking at the Old Testament, we are missing what God wants us to see. Jesus says, they testify of me. So we need to be looking for Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is really a stage uh, that gives a lot of symbolism uh, and ritualism to the whole plan of redemption. So my question is, when did God come up with a plan of redemption? Do what? What do you mean before creation? He did. It wasn't after Adam and Eve sinned. It wasn't when the flood came. He always had a plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption unfolds gradually throughout the entire Word of God. And it begins, of course, in the Old Testament. So the stories we read in the Old Testament, the events we we read about, they were certainly actual events. They did happen. And the scriptures are uh, there to give us the historical facts. But it's more than that because they are also typical 
prefigurations of what's going to unfold as the plan of redemption is come uh, to completion. So the first thing God does, he gives pictorial representations of Jesus Christ. Uh, later on, there are some specific prophecies about Jesus Christ. Would you agree to that? Uh, where will we find some of those at? In what book of the Bible, for example? Isaiah would be a good one. Uh, there are others as well, but Isaiah, we see a lot about that. And these are certainly specific prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. We see some in the book of Psalms as well. It uh, talks about how he will be crucified. And these are specific. They're not general, uh, but they are very specific about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when the fullness of time, when time was just right, God sent his son into the world. So we see a gradual revelation of God's plan of redemption. And by the way, uh, who completed that plan? Jesus Christ. What he did on Calvary uh, completed that plan. So if we miss the types in the Old Testament, uh, we are certainly uh, missing a lot of things that are valuable in our study of the new. Now, we looked at the Pentateuch last week, and uh, again, uh, we have to be careful here, uh, and, and I'm guilty as well, when we get to Exodus and Leviticus, and think, wow, you know, what are all these things? Uh, to us, they don't mean a lot. But remember, Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture is inspired. So what does that mean? Even Leviticus? Yeah, every bit of it is inspired by God. Now, keep in mind, uh, again, we know there were actual events, and they were uh, certainly by God's uh, command to do the things they were told to do in the Pentateuch. And it's all, but if that's all they were, were just uh, ceremonial rites, because, well, would you agree that God knew what they didn't know? Sure. And for the Jews, this thing became almost an idol to them. They were stuck. Uh, I mean, Jerusalem was a holy city. They had the temple there. Uh, they did these, all these rituals there. And yet, when Jesus came, there was no more need to sacrifice that Passover lamb. And the Jews simply couldn't get beyond that. And so, Jesus, God knew that one day... They would no longer need to bring sacrifices to a temple. They, they, God knew that one day all those sacrifices will be done away with. But did the people know that? Absolutely not. So again, we're seeing that in the Old Testament, and there's no way that they could have written like they did on their own unless it was given to them by God. And so even when we're reading the Old Testament, if we, if we don't see Christ in there, uh, we are certainly missing what God wants us to learn and certainly uh, missing what we could, what would edify our walk with Christ. And, and again, have to understand it doesn't matter what book we're reading in. Uh, even we mentioned last week uh, the Chronicles, for example, especially the first Chronicles, the first nine chapters. And, but even that is inspired by God. And there is a divine purpose. Now remember, Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration. And so if all we see is the facts, if all we see is the historical context of the Old Testament, we are missing a whole lot. And we're missing some 
valuable nutrition for our soul if we don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. Then we also talked about the New Testament last week. Uh, Go to Romans 15, verse 4. Again, Paul's referring to the events that were recorded in the Old Testament. And Paul says, hey, they're there uh, for our admonition, that we, uh, for our learning. And then chapter uh, 10 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul reaccounts the, uh, the time in the wilderness, how they rebelled against God. Look what it says in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, again, written for admonition. They're written that we might learn from them. So uh, the Old Testament stories were written down as warnings for us today, uh, for them, as Paul wrote to, and for us today as well. And we need to see the typical significance of the entire Word of God of the Old Testament. God knows exactly what He is doing. So I mentioned this last week. I don't think you were listening, so we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and start all over again, okay? <laughs> I think you know the verse, but go ahead and let's read it. In the beginning, who? God. Created the heaven and the earth. Now, unless I miss my guess, and I don't think I will, we all believe that, don't we? We agree with what the Scripture says. God created everything there in the beginning. But I also want you to realize that here in the very first chapter of Genesis is a treasure chest that's rich in spiritual contents. Now, my opinion is that chapter 1 of Genesis... Verse 1 gives us the only reliable, authentic account of the creation of the world. Would you agree? In the beginning, who? God. End of argument. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But it also reveals God's work In the new creation. Go to verse 2. Can somebody explain that to me? Okay, part of what God did. Uh, Now, uh, there are, speak up back there. Okay. So verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So I've got to ask myself, is that true? What are you saying, Paul? What it says, right? Yeah. 
<coughs> Thank you, Paul, for that observation, and that's what I want to hear. Now, the debate is, how could that be? You what? God said it is, yeah. No, God doesn't lie, and I, and I agree with all that. But certainly, and, and again, and I don't, I don't pretend to know the answer because there are different theories about this. Uh, some believe there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, that's called the gap theory, by the way. Uh, one of the proponents of that was uh, Adam Dake. And I used to have a Dake Bible, and I threw it away for that reason. But, uh, but I, just, I don't know how to explain it. But here's what I do know. And I don't understand this, because usually when God creates them, it's perfect. But again, there, I don't think there's a gap between the two verses. But it's sort of giving us a, a compilation of what's going on as God created everything. But the bottom line was this. The earth was without form and void. And Paul, like you said, the Bible says that is true. Yes. That's about it, right? So what's it going to take to make it inhabitable? I'll take God. The Bible says darkness was on the face of the deep. And of course, the rest of chapter 1 talks about how God began to speak things into existence. Dry land, separating the water from the water. When God needed light, what did he say? Yeah, he didn't need that, but when he let there be light, he spoke the word. So it took the hand of God to take the earth from being without form and void to being something suitable for us to live on. And there's sort of a parallel here. And we're talking about the typical representation of the Old Testament and the New. But that's also the history of man. We know that God created man. And the Bible says in chapter 1, we were created in whose image? In God's image. But in chapter 3, an enemy comes on the scene. And of course, you know the story. He enticed Eve, and she and Adam both sinned. Her heart was seduced, and unbelief and disobedience was the consequence. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, man fell. And my friend, it was an awful, awful fall. Satan attempted Eve, and we know that he did. And he made God out to be a liar, which God is not, but Satan is. 
And he says, God knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll know things that you don't know now. Now, that part was true. But when they ate of the tree, they began to know some things they never knew before. But guess what? Wasn't good. And I've often thought, I wonder how many times over in their mind, they thought, boy, I wish we hadn't have done that. They had learned things they wished they never knew. So in chapter 3, that image of God was marred. It wasn't destroyed, but it was, it was broken. And now for the first time, human nature was ruined by sin. And for the first time, desolation and death was going to come to mankind. And how many know there's always a consequence to sin? And right away, man's mind was blinded and darkness was on the face of his understanding. They lost something very precious. And so in this first chapter of Genesis, we see God doing the work of reconstruction. The Bible says the Spirit of God moved on the face of the water. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Who alone could bring the world, the earth, out of that darkness? Only God. Only God. And I think I see a parallel in this and in regeneration. We know that when we get the New Testament... The Bible says we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And what does dead mean? We are helpless and hopeless. And the new birth is performed within the darkened and spiritually dead center. And the only way that we can be Changed is when the Holy Spirit intervenes in our lives. He begins to move over our lives. He convicts us that we are, convinces us that we are lost. He convinces us that we're in a ruined condition. And He reveals to us that we need a Savior. And how many Saviors are there? Just one, Jesus Christ. That's kind of interesting. We read it a moment ago. Again, when God created light, how did he do it? He spoke it. Let there be light. And he used his word to bring about light. And the same thing is true 
in our salvation. He uses now the written word, the word of God. And whenever the heart is changed by the Spirit of God, in effect, God says, let there be light. And guess what? There's light. 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 6. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, by the way, in case you think I'm stretching this uh, analogy too far from Genesis 1 to the New Testament, look what Paul says. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. When did that happen? What chapter? Genesis 1. Paul says the same God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness in Genesis 1 has now shined in our hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Notice it says, in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul recognized the significance of God commanding light. And Paul said the same God commands light into our life, into our dark, unsaved lives. And gives us the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, only God could write a book like this and how it interweaves with the Old and the New Testament and it makes so much sense. We talked a moment ago about chapter 3 and uh, when sin happened and God knew that man would need a covering for their sin. In fact, when they sinned, what did Adam, Adam and Eve try to do? Try to hide from God. What did God ask him? Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Now, that doesn't mean God didn't know where he was. God knew. He wanted Adam to realize what had happened. Look where you are now, Adam. Where are you? Yes. Same is true. And so we know that God provided coats of skin to cover their sin. And certainly, we think about this This particular incident, way back in chapter 3 of Genesis, is full of spiritual instruction that could never have invented or entered the minds of man. So how in the world would God get those skins? What had to happen? Something had to die. A sacrifice had to be made. Blood had to be shed. Wait a minute. Who was guilty here? Adam and Eve. And an innocent animal 
had to die in their place. Die for the ones who were guilty so that they could have a covering provided for them. So when I think about the gospel and the truth of redemption by shedding of blood, and we think about a salvation through a a substitutionary sacrifice, we first hear about it where? In Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. Did you say it again? From the beginning, yes. Now here's what's interesting. Again, who sinned? Man did. But they didn't have to provide a covering for themselves. Marvin, did I hear you correctly when you mentioned a prodigal son? He went back home. And he said, I'm not worthy to be a son. I just want to be a servant. Genesis 3, verse 21. So what did God do for them? Covered them up. Luke fifteen twenty two. So when Adam and Eve didn't clothe themselves, God made them close to, uh, of skin. The prodigal son didn't clothe himself. Well, what did his dad do? Put a robe on him. And both of them speak of the robe of righteousness, which is furnished through our Lord Jesus Christ. The typical significance of the Scriptures. Isaiah 61, look at verse 10. Thank you, Dan. I just couldn't help but underline this as you read that. I will rejoice. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. How many are glad for that? Amen. So we see it in the covering of our first parents' sin with skins of an animal. The innocent died for the guilty. But also in chapter 4, Cain and Abel enter the picture. And certainly, Eve's hope of redemption was on Cain. 
in his birth. Look at verses 3 through 5. Thank you, Phyllis. So we see two offerings, one by each brother. They present them to the Lord. And we read about the response which what they met. And in that offering and response, we have a shadowing, a foreshadowing, of some New Testament truths. Now, do you remember, think about chapter 3 for a moment. Because of Adam's sin, God cursed the ground. Isn't that true? And what do you tell Adam about that? Yeah, you got to work to get it now. I mean, that's just going to be part of your life. That's going to be your everyday thing. And there'll be briars and weeds. And it'll be difficult. Now, in our story in chapter 4, verse 4 says that Abel brought to God are the firstlings of the flock and their fat. For whatever reason, Abel recognized that he was alienated from God and he knew that he couldn't draw near to God without a suitable offering. Now think about that. He realized that his own life was forfeited because of sin. And justice demanded his death. And Abel recognized that the only, only way, the only hope he had was in someone else or something else. Dying in his place. Now we know from the book of Hebrews that it was by faith Abel presented his bloody offering to God and God accepted it. But Cain refused to take the place of a lost sinner before God. Abel goes out of his way to please God. And that, that indicates that he had faith in God, <clears throat> but Cain was just doing his duty. He was tilling the ground. Nothing less, nothing more. And it's clear, even though we don't understand everything about it, Abel's actions were righteous and Cain's were evil. 1 John 3, verse 12 gives some insight to that. 
Wow, Cain got so mad he did what? Killed his brother. And in the New Testament, John refers back to that. He said, why did he do that? Because what he did was evil, was wrong. But what Abel did was right before God. And so Cain refused to acknowledge that justice demanded he die. And refused to place his confidence in a sacrificial substitute. Now, bear with me just a moment here. Suppose uh, Adam and Eve said to God, no, we don't want them skins. We don't want to wear those skins. We don't want to cover it up. Would that have been good? <laughs> Absolutely not. So what Cain did, he brought an offering to God of the fruits of the ground. In fact, it was the product of his own labor. And the result was God rejected his offering. What can we do to please God on our own? Nothing. That's the... Good explanation. Abel followed what he knew God wanted. Now, I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I have to believe that Adam and Eve told Cain and Abel what had happened in the early days, don't you? Yeah, what God had done for them. So right away, in the early pages of the Old Testament, the very beginning of human history, the Bible shows that salvation is by works. No. Salvation is by grace through faith apart from any works. And that's why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, one of our favorite verses, at least mine anyway. I'm sure yours. What does that mean? It's a, it's a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Years ago, when I worked at General Motors, I had a couple of uh, co-workers that were Jehovah Witnesses. And uh, believe it or not, we had some pretty healthy discussions. And I was a young Christian back then, and uh, I don't know, much da- don't know much now, but I knew even less then, okay? And... Uh, they could not get over the fact that it's just by faith alone. And that's why they go out knocking on doors and they do what they do because to them, it's got to be by works if you're going to get in. And in my limited knowledge as a young Christian, I, I couldn't already find the words to explain to them. But here's the thing, folks. If it weren't for grace... Who could be saved? Nobody could. Nobody could. And so right away, back in Genesis 4, we, we find out that our salvation, it's not by anything we do. It's only by the grace of God. And it's through our faith. And that faith is a gift from God as well. Then in chapter 6, we come 
to the story of Noah. Chapter 6, let's read verses 5 through 7. Is it fair to say that God is aware of what his creatures are doing? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we learn it early on. And we learn early on that God is holy. And sin is abhorrent to him. And because he is holy, 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 because he is righteous... His righteousness requires him to punish sin and to destroy sinners. Again, we know the wages of sin is what? Death. Chapter 7, verse 1, Genesis. Wow, what a verse. Does that mean Noah was sinless? No. But he trusted who? He trusted God. God told Noah to build an ark. I wonder how many he built before that. This is number one. Well, no, no reason to build one, at least not yet anyway. But it's interesting. In the midst of a great flood, and the ark in which Noah and his house found shelter, is another foreshadow, a typification of great spiritual truth. We read earlier, chapter 6, that God was sorry he made man. He said, the thoughts of the heart are only continual, are evil continually all the time. And he repented he ever made man. And yet, we find here that even in the midst of this great judgment, God remembers mercy. Who received mercy? Yeah. Did they deserve it? No. And we learn that in judgment God remembers mercy, but we also learn he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And his grace provides a refuge and it's available to all whosoever will come and Reap the benefit of the salvation he provides. And I don't know for sure, but I wonder, as I think about the ark, 
I wonder who could have gotten on there. You what now? That family. Whoever God led on it. And I, I tend to believe that if somebody said, you know what, I, I think no one's right. There is a God. And I need to repent and put my trust in Him. They probably could have gotten on. I, I don't know for sure about that. Yeah, whosoever will. Say it, White Phyllis. Oh, yeah, they were mocking, like our world does today, by the way. And then what Jesus said, like it was in the days of Noah, sure shall it be when the Son of Man comes again. That's true. We know what happened. The rains came. The fountain of the deep broke up. And there was only one place of safety. Where was that at? On the ark. Only one place of safety and security. So what does that tell us about our Savior today? How many are there? Just one. There's only one Savior for sinners. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4 verse 12. Is that verse ambiguous? You're shaking your head no, Alan. What do you mean by that? That's it. No guessing. Uh, yeah, through one man. So would you agree there's no doubt about that? And for Noah to be saved in his day, there's one place, the ark. For us to be saved today, there's one Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Go to Exodus chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Thirteen and fourteen, please. Thank you, Dan. Uh, most of you know the story of how they got there. Famine came. Joseph was there. He was second in command. He had food for the world. And his brothers came, and of course they were there for some 450 years, give or take. And early on, it was a friendly environment. But there came a day when that Pharaoh died, that new Joseph, and another Pharaoh came in. And all of a sudden, instead of being friends with the Jews, what happened? They were afraid of them. They were afraid of them. And so, the Israelites in the days of Exodus, they were living in a hostile world. And I want you to know today, folks, for those who are living for Christ, we are living in a hostile world. 
The world does not like us, but particularly what we stand for and who we stand with. They simply don't like us. And so the Israelites, by the time Moses comes along, they were living in a world without hope. It had become desperate. And my friend, we are also living in a world without God and without hope. Before we were saved, we were in bondage to a cruel taskmaster of sin and of Satan. And no matter how hard we tried, or no matter how long we tried, we could not break free. And one night, God told the the Israelites, I want you to sacrifice a lamb. And I want you to take that blood and put it over the top part of your door and down the sides. And God told Moses, you tell them, whenever the destroyer comes, he will pass over you. And those who didn't have the blood, what happened? They died. And we were in imminent danger of falling beneath the sword of God's judgment. But just as God provided a way during the Exodus, He provides a way for us today. But aren't you glad that 2,000 years ago a lamb was slain? And that promise of chapter 12 of Exodus 13 is true for us. Look what it says. That promise was for them and it's for us today through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.13. Talking about Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed by the power of an almighty God through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So again, we're looking at internal evidence of the divine inspiration of the Word of God. All right, let's stop there for tonight. And let's take some prayer requests. I certainly want to continue to pray for all those on our prayer list. Uh, we still haven't heard any more news on uh, Sister Barbara Harshbarger, but I am sure without a doubt she can use our prayer, so continue to pray for her. Uh, continue to pray uh, for Dave and George's Phillips uh, daughter, Rachel. Uh, 